Hello, this is the fourth and final podcast in our series about the Court of Protection. As a reminder, the Court of Protection is a specialist court who are involved in decision making for people who are unable to make decisions for themselves. In this podcast, we look at capacity and what this means within the Court of Protection. People who lack capacity can be vulnerable. This vulnerability could mean they are easily manipulated or subjected to financial abuse. The Court of Protection and the deputies it appoints to manage the money are a layer of protection against this. My name is Anne Pearson. I am a lawyer in the Boys Turner Court of Protection team. Joining me today to discuss this is Ruth Mayer, who leads our Court of Protection team. Hi Ruth, how are you? I'm fine Anne, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. So Ruth, what is mental capacity? Well, mental capacity is quite simply the ability to make a decision. Now, these can be quite straightforward decisions such as uh, what to eat or what to wear, or they could be more significant decisions such as um, making a will which has legal consequences. But under the Mental Capacity Act, the starting point always has to be that you have to assume capacity unless proven otherwise. So how is somebody's capacity assessed and can anyone assess it? Well, under the Mental Capacity Act, it's a two-stage test. So a person will lack capacity if they have an impairment or disturbance of the mind or brain, and this could be due to an injury at birth, uh, a road traffic accident, drug or alcohol abuse or dementia. And if the answer to that is yes, then you you ask, is that person unable to make a specific decision? So who can actually carry out the assessment? Well, for everyday decisions, such as what to eat or wear, it's most likely going to be a family member or a carer. For medical decisions, it's going to be a doctor or a nurse. And for legal transactions, it's a solicitor. But even then, if the solicitor has any doubt and it's a complex decision, they will ask for a formal assessment by perhaps a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a social worker. And whoever's carrying out the assessment, whether it be Um, a carer or a doctor or solicitor, they need to ensure that they don't judge anyone on their age, appearance or behaviour. They need to keep an open mind in order to avoid any discrimination. Right. So what does it mean if somebody is described as not having the ability to make a decision? And how would you show something like that? I think there's four points to note here in terms of um, assessing somebody on the ability to make a decision. The first point is, can they understand that decision? So whoever's doing the assessment needs to look at all of the background information, um, maybe about a person's finances, where the money's from, what their needs are. They might also want to consider uh, past wishes and um, feelings from other family and uh, friends. The second point to note is the person needs to be able to retain the information only long enough in order to make the decision. So the assessor shouldn't ask questions that result in a yes or no answer. They need to ask um, questions that will um, bring about a specific response. So if they're talking about perhaps um, a power of attorney, they won't say, did you understand that? They might say, I've been speaking about a power of attorney. Can you just recap what it is and what it does? Now, thirdly, the person needs to be able to weigh up all the pros and cons of the decision. And finally, they need to be able to communicate their wishes. And usually it's verbal, but sometimes it's not. Um, Communication's interesting. So it could be through sign language. It could be through pictures or even the blinking of an eye. So um, 
I had a client and I, I really wanted her to be able to take part in, in a decision and she's nonverbal. And so what I did, I had a piece of paper and I drew a line through the middle and I put a happy face at one end and a sad face at the other end. And then I asked her questions and asked her to point on the line where she wanted the cross to go, whether it was nearer to the happy face or the sad face. And from that, I was able to get her to partake in the decision. So it's really, really important to keep good notes and the court may actually ask for them later on. And in fact, with that client I've just been speaking about, they did. Um, likewise, I've, I had a client who um, he suffered a, a serious brain injury and um, he has four sons and um, his four sons, out of his four sons, two of them really helped him after the accident. One son was an alcoholic and, and vanished and the other son was quite violent. Anyway, this client of mine, he wanted to make a will, but he wanted to ensure that only the two sons that had been helping him later in life benefited under the will. So we spoke to an assessor and explained all the background and all the detail and everything. And the assessor went in and carried out the assessment, but not once, but he went three times at different times of the day, asking different questions. And from that, he was able to pull the assessment together, and get a really good picture of what his wishes were. And it was just so important that we got that right. Right. So does one assessment of capacity cover everything then in, in respect of the person that's been assessed? Well, you have the same test for capacity on the Mental Capacity Act for everything that it covers, such as finances or health and welfare. But each decision has to be treated separately. However, there are some tests for capacity that have come through case law, and they are known as common law tests. And those are things such as capacity to make a will or capacity to marry. But the definition of capacity in the Mental Capacity Act is in line with these common law tests. Um, so the Act does not actually replace them. So at what point should capacity be assessed then? And, and who's likely to uh, ask for something like that to be done? Well, as said, the starting point is always to assume capacity unless it can be proven otherwise. And if there's doubt, then you get capacity assessed. So um, in my situation, I'm usually asked to be appointed as a deputy for somebody who has a, maybe a compensation award or, or, their, or finances and um, they, they need to be dealt with. And I will make the application for um, my appointment. But at the same time, I have to also um, get a, what's called a COP3 completed, which is a formal assessment of capacity. So I do everything together and it can take quite a, a few months to actually get the deputyship appointment and a good few weeks to actually get the capacity assessment. So I try and get those done as quickly as possible at a very early stage. But even then, once I have been appointed as deputy, there may be um, certain points in a person's life when I'll need to get capacity assessed again for specific decisions. Right. Well, it's commonly known, I think, that the Court of Protection is a place for adults who lack capacity. So how come you also act as a deputy for children? That's a really good question. I do act for many children. Um, there's actually a small section in the Mental Capacity Act which says I can apply for deputyship if it can be shown that the child is unlikely to have capacity to make um, a decision. And for me, they're usually financial decisions at the age of 18. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's really clear that the child isn't going to have capacity at 18. And sometimes it isn't. And so what I do is I have to submit all the evidence. And that could be evidence sort of giving, give, saying that the child will have capacity or they may not have capacity. 
and then I submit it all to the court and it's the court that decides. And the court, once I'm appointed deputy, they may ask for further tests once the child becomes an adult and gets to maybe 21 or 24, and that's not unusual. So in any event, um, the court will make the decision, but I can also decide later on if I think I should actually go back to the court and submit further evidence. And in fact, I've got a duty to do so if I think that person has actually regained capacity. You've mentioned others who can assess somebody's capacity, but are there times when you as a professional deputy also assess somebody's capacity? Well, I think I'm assessing people's capacity all of the time, even if it's not actually done formally. Um, You know, I've got a client who recently had a road traffic accident, and I know he can make some decisions himself with support, and at other times he can't. So I will manage things like um, a a large account or an an investment portfolio, and he manages the smaller ones for, for everyday things. I also try and keep things as simple as possible. So the letters are really basic and simple so that he can follow through what I'm saying, and I try and involve him as much as possible. But all of the time when I'm, I'm looking at somebody's ability to make a decision, I'm saying, well, can they understand that? Can they retain it? Can they weigh up the pros and cons and can they communicate? So I think the whole ethos of the Mental Capacity Act is to empower people to make their own decisions. I'm not there to actually take over. I'm there to support and help them make that decision. Right. So once somebody has been assessed as not having capacity, is that it or can somebody be assessed at any other time? Certainly not it. Um, I mentioned earlier that the court can make a direction that children um, can be assessed later, but adults can as well. Um, I've got situations where I've made the decision that somebody should be assessed later on. So I've been acting for a child since she was eight and got to know her really well over the years. And once she got to the age of 18, I decided to get the evidence together and submit it to the court. And she's now no longer with the court of protection. Likewise, I've got uh, brain injured adults, quite, quite a number of them, who have actually recovered through therapy and support. And once again, I've submitted the evidence to the uh, court and um, they've um, come out of the court of protection. So even though the court can put it in the deputship order that somebody needs to be reassessed later, I also have a duty to apply if I think somebody's regained capacity. It's quite a simple process. I simply uh, submit all the evidence and the court then makes the decision. Right. So is it possible that somebody could have a capacity that varies? Sometimes they do have capacity, sometimes they don't. And if so, how can that be assessed? It's a difficult one, as people can have fluctuating capacity. Um, We need to apply for deputship in the usual way and then be really alert to the fact that they can make some decisions and may need support in others. So I've got clients with schizophrenia or who are bipolar, and I just need to be really alert to the fact that um, there will be times when they can make the decisions themselves. So all decisions are subject and time specific. And with a maybe a bipolar client, they're going to be able to make a decision um, quite clearly once they're on their medication, um, but not um, if they're off the medication. Um, and in terms of decisions being specific, some people can make certain decisions in some areas and not in others. Um, and, and everyone's different. So I've got a client, brain injured um, adult. He can do his daily shopping. Um, he can manage a small bank account. Um, and he's even been assessed as um, being able to make his own will. But he can't pay bills. Right. So what happens if somebody has been assessed themselves as lacking capacity or they know somebody who's been assessed as lacking capacity, but they don't agree with it? 
Well, when we make an application to the court, we will write to three family members and the person themselves so they have the opportunity to object if they think we're jumping the gun. And if capacity is in dispute, all of the evidence will go to the court and it's the court who make the decision. Now, later on, a person may disagree that they shouldn't be within the court of protection and they just simply need to submit the evidence to the court. And once again, it's the court who makes that decision. So overall, I think capacity and how it's assessed can be quite complicated, but you need to start with the basics. Ask, has that person got capacity to make their own decision? If not, use the MCA to guide you. Um, I think assessing capacity is vitally important as um, somebody may be denied the right to make their own decision. So a deputy really does need to get this right. Ruth, thank you. And thank you for working with me on this podcast series and for providing such interesting information and examples of the clients you work with. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. The other podcasts in this series covered the process and procedure for appointing a deputy, the realities of day-to-day life for a deputy and the best interest decisions deputies can be required to make. Finally, if you would like more information, please go to roysturnerclaims.com and look for the link to Court of Protection.